Hi, you are listening to Eternal Stance. I hope this message inspires you to live in light of eternity. It is good to be in the house of God. Thank you so much for all of you guys who decided to wake up early. I know if you are a family and you have kids, it's a lot more difficult. The process is longer to get here, um, but you are here, and I am so thankful for that. And as Pastor Yuri mentioned, we are going through a series called Thriving in Babylon. As Christians, we don't think we're just called to survive. We're called to thrive, amen? And uh, God, you know, even part of the ladies' study, uh, God gave us an armor to protect ourselves, but also God gave us a will and also called us to not just play the defensive, but to go on the offensive, right? Imagine if you decided that, you know, if you're on a uh, soccer or football team and you decided you, all you're going to do is you're going to play defensive, you know? As long as, they, as long as they don't score on our, our side, well, eventually you will lose, right? You have to go on the offensive. As a Christian, you are called not to just kind of play. I'm not going to engage, especially what's happening right now in politics, right? Like uh, there's a tendency to pull back and say, well, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to say anything. You know, if, if you, I remember the first uh, day of college, I think it was like the first day of that class, in college, uh, this, this professor attacked my faith right away. And I was just like, no. And she's, we started to kind of have this argument a little. And I remember realizing pretty quickly how hostile at times people can be towards your faith. So we as Christians, we are surrounded by Babylon. Now, of course, we live in Bellevue, Seattle, regardless, Washington. But the enemy still kind of, kind of does the same old schemes. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the book of Daniel, and I want to show you that his strategies are not that new. A lot of his strategies are very, very old. And he's tried this. But there's been people in the Old Testament and New Testament where they, like Jesus, have not only just sort of, you know, walked amongst the people of the world, they overcame the world, right? So if you have your book, we're going to start right in chapter 1. one. Again, Pastor Yuri said a lot about the book of Daniel for the last two weeks, but I want to just kind of remind you what's happening here for those of you who maybe have, uh, you know, not been here for the last two weeks. But in Daniel 1, one says this, in the third year of, of the reign of Jehoi- uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So right off the bat, we see a broken situation. We see the people of God, the Israelites, are led by this guy. His name is Jehoiakim. Now, if you look in, you know, um, the, the book of Chronicles and Kings, you see that Jehoiakim was not a very good king. In fact, he was murderous. He was one of the worst kings that Israel has had, which is a really odd if you think about it, because guess who his father was? His father was Josiah. Now, if you remember in the Old Testament, Josiah became king at eight years old. And then when he was about 18 years old, they found the books of the law 
and he was read to him, and he instituted in the nation a whole revival. He, he started to you know, pretty much destroy every single idol, and he started to do this major revival, a, a major thing happening for the, for the people of Israel. And then on his throne, after his death, his son, one of his sons steps onto the throne. I think he was a king only for about uh, three months. And then he was deposed by Pharaoh, the king of, Israel, uh, of uh, Egypt. And after this vacuum of power happened, Jehoiakim, which is one of the brothers of this other guy that just got deposed by Pharaoh, or the son of Josiah, steps onto the throne and he basically starts to change the laws and he just lives a very wicked lifestyle. And, and you look at this and you're like, okay, how is God going to deal with this? How is God going to impact this nation right now when the nation has forsaken God? The nation, the king is, is giving orders that are not godly. And he says, look, look, look at it here. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Of course, you know, before this, there was a split in the kingdom between the Israelites and, well, in, in between Israelites and there was, you know, kind of like two kingdoms. He, so he was the king of Judah. He says the, the Lord is the one who gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is not really a nice guy either. He is conquering, this is about 600 years before Jesus, about six, 605 B.C., 606 B.C., so in this broken situation, you have a king that is ungodly, and then you have another king that comes, and God allows his people to go into slavery and gives his people into the hands of a wicked king. Why in the world would God do this? Well, God is trying to get their attention. So I want to speak to you this morning just for a minute and say, a lot of times when we are going through a, a dark season of our lives, some things are happening around us. And then you kind of wonder, God, where are you in this? Can I tell you that God is sovereign over your situation? Can I tell you that God is working behind the scenes? He's moving everything into place. Can I tell you this morning that he is sovereign over whatever? And, and if you are in a, in a uh, kind of a, a time of distress, if you, are, uh, you have problems or maybe someone is persecuting you, God is working in that. On the other hand, if you are going through a, a time of rebellion, if you know you are sinning and you are not being led to repentance, you, are not, uh, you don't feel remorse for your sin, can I tell you that God is working in that situation to bring you to him? Can I tell you that he will put circumstances in your way to get your attention? God is in charge of all this. God is sovereign over the, all this. So this is exactly what's happening here. The, the children of Israel have forsaken God have completely sort of kind of turn around because they have a wicked king, but not all of them. Because you, we see here that the king ordered, the, so 
after he comes into, so Nebuchadnezzar basically comes and t- overtakes Jehoiakim, and he says that he takes with him some of the royal young people of the household of Jehoiakim. And not only that, but they actually steal some of the ornaments, some of the uh, vessels, rather, in the house of God. These are vessels, cups, and they're made out of gold and silver and so on and so forth, and they are stolen from the house of God. And these are, these are basically vessels that they are supposed to be in the presence of God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he steals this. He, in verse 3 says this, Then the king ordered Ashephaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who are good-looking, showing intelligence, in every branch of wisdom, in doubt with understanding and discernment knowledge, and who had ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them literature of the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily uh, ration, or ration, is that how it's pronounced? Ration, there you go. From the king's choice food, I'm guessing the better word there would be portion, um, from the wine which he drank and appointed that he, they should be educated three years, kind of like you know, getting a bachelor's in three years, right? Like at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them uh, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The commander of the official assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shidrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So we see that they ordered to bring some young people into this new kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's reasons why they would do this. Uh, one of the reasons would be that if they were to kind of kidnap and take into captivity some of the noble sons and daughters, right, then the nobles of that nation would not rebel. That was the standard practice of a lot of, you know, the kind of like the old ancient world when they would go conquer a, a, a place. They would take some of the noble sons and ruler's sons so they would not rebel. Because you would not rebel against a kingdom when you know that your sons are there. You not go and destroy their kingdom when you know that you have an interest in that kingdom. So they are brought before Nebuchadnezzar and then they're pretty much put into the service of being taught the way of the Babylonians. The, the, the Bible here talks about the language of the Chaldeans. Now, obviously, the Babylonians are, are a, very, uh, a very ungodly culture, a culture that is, you know, worshiping gods and worshiping, you know, a whole bunch of different things, and they're not godly by any stretch of the imagination. And in this place the king gives order to one of the eunuchs who's in charge of all these new young people that came in. And he says, would you train them for three years? They are to, you know, eat from my table. This is not slavery. Now, of course, this is slavery because they got kidnapped. But they got kind of got a promotion, if you think about this. They are taken from their land, and they're brought into a land that is beautiful. Not only that, but they're put into a school that's very prestigious. 
Not only that, but they eat from the king's table. Talk about steak and sauces and all of this, right? Like, this is not exactly a bad situation to find yourself in. Would you not agree? Right? Like, this is a, uh, 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 not only that, but they have some amazing opportunities here. Working for the king? This is amazing. Of course, to a certain extent, I can relate to this. Not that I was kidnapped anywhere, just for the record. But when I came, now we understand that Daniel and his friends, when they were kidnapped and moved into Babylon, they were about, some scholars say, between 14 to about 16. So let's say that Daniel is 15 years old. Well, I came to this nation when I was 15 years old. And can I tell you that when you move from one nation with one set of friends and family and so on and so forth and moving here, it's a bit disorienting when you are learning a whole new language. When for a long time, I still had no idea why I was referred to, uh, to as a resident alien. Cause I'm like, I have not like, I have no, how, why do they call me an alien? <laughs> like it, it, there was a lot of things that I would just sort of hear. And I was like, but why though? <laughs> like you made no sense. I, I came here cause it was a freedom. Like uh, it was country about freedom. And then in high school, every single time you w- wanted to go to the bathroom, you had to have a pass. And I'm like, I don't get this. <laughs> and the pass was one of those toilet seats. So people put them, like, it was just weird. Like, I did not understand the culture whatsoever when I moved here. But nonetheless, what I loved about this place was that you could eat as many bananas as you wanted. <laughs> and oranges. And, and, and you could open the fridge and there's so much food. When our fridge back there had nothing. And we, we didn't even know why we even kept their fridge. But like here, you have so much. And the opportunities start, started to open up before me. And then I started to notice that like my, my parents would not supervise me as much, right? Like, and I go to school and everyone is offering me things. And, and I'm like, this is awesome though. I, it's a bit disorienting, but like, and then I drive by Seattle. I'm like, th- I've never seen this in my life. I'm going on the plane for the first time. This was disorienting, but it was also kind of amazing. There's a lot of amazing opportunities that came my way. But therein lies the problem, doesn't it? You see, I came from a third old country that my parents were being fined for baptizing people. My dad was in jail because he tried to build a church. We had not a lot of things. We made our own toys because we couldn't afford any. And the reason I got excited about bananas so much is because we only ate them maybe once in half a year. We didn't eat the choice food. We didn't have a lot of things. We were poor. But we knew the Lord. I remember people walking into our house and they were not allowed to sing loud because, you know, they didn't want to get fined. But then when they would start to pray, the house would shake. I remember the passion of my grandparents, well, my grandma. I remember the passion of my parents. But then I came here and I was like, well, there's freedom. Then I moved out at 23 and then I was just like, I can do whatever, I have a car, I can do whatever I want. You wanna know who you truly are? Is when you have no restraints. When your parents are no longer there, that's your true character. When nobody's in the room and you're on the computer, that's your true character. 
when nobody is pulling you back, nobody's telling you what to do, and you choose to fall off of the Lord. That is your true character. You see, the enemy has two ways of tempting. And I think this is exactly what's happening here. This is the second way. The first way, the people of Israel were in bondage for 400 years. And in bondage, they came with pretty much just a family. And when they left, some scholars put anywhere from 500,000 people to 2 million people left. In bondage, they grew. In bondage, they worshiped their God in Egypt. In bondage, they declared that you can't change us. You can make us work. You can, make us, you can put us in poverty. But guess what? You cannot change us. Well, the enemy understands this now. So in this part of the Old Testament, he tries a different tactic. It used to be that he would try to contain the church by persecution. And that does not work. If we look at history, we understand that when the church is persecuted, that's when the church actually really grows. If you want to see a good example of that, look at China right now, the church in China. When the church is persecuted, that's when the church actually grows. But you take the same people and you give them freedom and you give them opportunities and you give them money and you give them influence. You see, Babylon was all about making a name for yourself. Babylon was all, all, all about building build buildings. Babylon was all about you need to make a name that is great for yourself. That's why when Daniel moves into Babylon, he, he went from, you know, his, his name meant God is my judge. And then they change all their names and all their names, I don't really have every single one of their translations, but basically had to do with some kind of worship of a weird God. So, so you see, when you are moved from this place to a new place, the, what the enemy wants to do is to change you. And he tried pressure, especially for those of you who immigrated from different countries, you understood the level of persecution. I remember my sister getting her, her, her head smashed against a you know, blackboard because she would not wear the communist you know, red thing. Right? So he tried this, this tactic of intimidating uh, of, of persecuting, and it didn't work. The church just grew. Our church went from a family that my, my grandma started, the church, and then it blew to hundreds of people in our village. And he understood pretty quickly that this doesn't work. The enemy understood that. So we came here, and everything was laid before us. Oh, you want to buy a car? Just go work, and... You have a car, and you want food, you can buy anything you want. Unless you have some weird delicacy thing that you were really going for. You want influence? <laughs> America's all about building that American dream, you know. Right, so everything's, and if I talk about Bellevue and Seattle, is that a lot of opportunity. Young people, when you go to college, you will have a lot of opportunity. When you step out of your family's at home, you will have an opportunity. And the question then becomes, what kind of Christian will you be then? 
when everything's given to you. But here's what we see, the amazing heart and character of Daniel. It says that Daniel, he moved in, but he says Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the, uh, of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should, you, uh, should he see that your face is looking more uh, haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So Daniel, you know, normally when you come into a country that you don't, you disagree with, what we would do is you get yourself a soapbox and you stand on it and you get a huge sign and you start to pick it and tell the world you disagree with the president and tell the world that you hate his laws and tell the world that, hey, I, I want to tell you that you're wrong. That's not what Daniel does. He is respectful. He is kind. He is humble. But he's not compromising. But he's not giving in. But he is praying. He is fasting. That is the nature of what Christ's character is like. Not pointing and using profanities to point, oh, they're just wrong. And no, it's, it's you know what? I, we understand at the end of the day that we live in the broken world. And I can affirm the person's depravity while upholding their dignity. I can acknowledge that, that person is fallen and what they're saying makes no sense and what they're saying is evil, yet still give them the dignity because they're made in God's image. I can look at the president and pray for him. I can disagree with the laws and still pray for those in charge. I, I can disagree with what's happening in the country and at the same time walk in gentleness and kindness and win favor and in that favor not compromise. This is what Daniel does here. He doesn't go and starts putting his law down. No, he says, look, there are certain things I just can't do. And I choose not to defile myself. Now, it's a weird thing because a lot of us don't understand how is it defining yourself by eating from the king's table? Well, there's a lot of reasons for this. One of them would be that he is Jewish and he eats kosher. Right? So, so as a Jewish person, they are told not to eat the same things as everyone else. So that's one reason. The second reason, I think even more important, is that though the food that was given to the king was usually sacrificed to the idols first. And that would defile, it, that would defile him. And the third thing that I think is even more important, and he chooses to not defile himself, the daily, he, instead of, you know, eating steak and sauces and uh, the king's table, he has his own brown bag with vegetables. Why, though? Maybe because that's a reminder that I'm not like everyone else. That I don't eat like everyone else. 
Something amazing happens when you just come into a place and you fully embrace everything. It's so much easier for you to go along with everyone's mentality as long as you're just open to everything. But Daniel's like, no, no, no. This, to me, is a sign that I don't belong to this, this, this country. This, to me, signifies that I belong to the Lord, that I was raised better than this, that I am different than all of this. And for now, I'm just a refugee here. I'm an alien in this place. This is not who I am. Now, young people, when you go to college, when you go to work, and people start making fun of your ideas of, oh, you still believe in a God, this is your chance to say, you know what? I am not like everyone else. I was raised better than this. Not only that, what's more important, that this world is not my home. I am not running after the same things as everyone is running after. So the first thing I want to tell you, that if Jesus is enough for your salvation, Jesus is your, enough for your significance. Now I want to spend some time here and tell you that a lot of times we don't understand that we are motivated by our significance. We do things because we want people to think that we matter. The, we, we do things because we want people to pay attention to what we do and look at us and say, oh wow, you're so amazing. You are so awesome, you know. If you are, you know, 45 years old and you go, you're going through a midlife crisis, um, I, I, I'm not going through a midlife crisis because I'm not 45, but I'm going, I, I, at 25, I was going through an early life crisis, if you can call it that, where I had to really sit down and say, like, what is my life about? Where am I going? Nobody thinks I'm cool anymore. I think that really disturbed me. Right? When, when you're 18 and then you have all this energy and all that and you have all these friends and then everyone gets married. And you're like, well, what, 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 what would happen? Right? Like, well, I thought I was... It shows in different ways. If you're a mom in this place, I have no idea what you're going through because I'm not a mom. But I do have a mom. My mom told me one time, she's like, Savi, you know, honestly, the only joy that I have in life is you guys is my sons and daughters. My purpose in life is to be there for you. Moms, if you work at home, not stay at home, I think it's work at home because you work 24-7, maybe there's a, there's a feeling in there that everyone is out and they're building these careers and they're building uh, names for themselves and you're just raising three young boys. Or, and you might feel, you might feel that like, what am I doing with my life? My mom raised seven, five boys and two, two girls. And she had these moments a lot because she talked to me about them. And I could look in her eyes and say, Mom, but you raised me. You're part of what I'm doing. Mom, you're part of what I'm preaching. Mom, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you quite literally, but also spiritually. Right, Mom, you are part of this. Don't allow the world to tell you that your job is not important. If you're a small group leader and maybe you've had three people, you're a small group this week. Again, one of them maybe was a family member, but, <laughs> right? And you don't feel that you're making a difference. Can I tell you that God is moving every single scene be behind? He, he's behind all of this. If he's enough for salvation, he's enough 
for our significance. We don't need to chase the things of the world to feel important. He is our importance. His glory alone is worth it. Eternity is worth it. Raising godly men and young women is worth it. Standing in the gap for a generation in prayer is worth it. Regardless how you feel, maybe you don't feel like your life is amounting to anything. Maybe you are, on, are in the kind of like the older part of your life. And you look back at your life and you're saying, well, Lord, how I could have done this, I could have done this. You could, have, you could always look at the things you could have done. But can I tell you that God ordained all that? God was present in all of that. Just like God is present in this place where Daniel is in the place of, of, of ungodliness. Now I understand that here at Sit on the Hill, we take prayer, fasting, communion very seriously. We take baptism very seriously. And the reason we take those things so, so, so seriously is because almost on a daily basis, it reminds us that we are just passers-by in this world. That we are not of this world. We are not chasing the same things. We are after what the Lord has called us. Not after careers, not after money, not after power, not after fame. We are going after the Lord. And every single time we fast, we say, you know what? I choose to do this not because, oh, you know, uh, this was offered to the idols. Most of the time now when we fast, our food is not offered to the idols. We don't eat kosher. But we fast because it's also a reminder that we are not like everyone else. And this is me saying, Lord, my devotion to you is so much more important than my belly. My devotion to you is so much more important than, than, than my importance and my significance. That is why we do a lot of these things. So this is what Daniel has done. He has decided that he's not going to, you know, put himself in a position where he's going to have to do what everyone does. And this is what also Jesus encourages us. And the Apostle Paul talks about this. Look at this. Jesus' prayer for us is not necessarily that we would have the latest BMW, if you know what I mean. Look at what Jesus in John 17, 13 says. But now I come to you, so he's praying to God, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and your world, and the world rather, has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may themselves also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, listen, this is not just about the disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through the word, that they may be all 
uh, be all one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer for you and for me is that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are not called as a church to pull ourselves from culture, from everything, not engage in politics, not engage in business, not engage in culture, because we just have to, you know, we just have to keep our own. There is actually a, a, a people back in the first century, I think they were called the Essenes, where they kind of pulled themselves from, from the world. And they decided not, not to have anything to do with the world because, oh, we're just going to wait until Jesus raptures us. And I think as a family, a lot of times, even my parents, even the church I grew up, th- th- that was sort of the thing that we tried to do is to, I was not allowed to go to any of the events because my parents didn't want me to become like the world. But here's a perfect example of someone living in that in Babylon for 24-7 and not just surviving but thriving in Babylon. Not just having one sort of, you know, uh, off devotion but living in devotion daily. Daniel talks about, or the book of Daniel talks about how he would pray daily. How he would fast and he would only eat, you know, that's why we have the Daniel's fast of vegetables and, and fruits. Apostle Paul picks up on this and he says this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there is a way to live in the world and not be of the world. There is a way to worship the Lord in Seattle. There is a way to live in the great USA and worship the Lord and be respectful, and be honorable, and pray for the authorities, and declare the gospel, and declare the truth of the Lord to every single person that you encounter. Now, this will cost you. It cost Daniel, because he didn't just come with by himself. He came with, with other people. He came with his friends, and basically, well, they, his friends were also kidnapped in the same kind of thing, and, and what helped them, what I love about it wasn't just him. His devotion, it wasn't just him. It was also his friends. There's a time where the king of Babylon decides that he's going to make this huge stature and everyone's supposed to you know, worship this stature and, and all the gods of, of Babylon. And, and this, you're going to find this in Daniel 3.13. And, and Daniel's friends, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decide they're not going to do this. They will not bow to the whims of the culture, to the idols of the culture. They will not bow to Babylon's gods. So in in 3.13 says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment, you hear the sound of the horns, flute, lyre, uh, trigon, um, solitary, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of furnace, of blazing fire, and the God 
And what God, rather, is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And look at their response. You think, I mean, he's threatening their lives. And look at their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. What a way to reply. Don't suggest it, but that's bold for a 16-year-old. If it, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, listen, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love how Mercy Me, the band, they put this into a song and they wrote this, these lyrics that I'm just gonna read them to you because they're just so powerful. And I remember in my own life when I was going through a rough time, I came across this song and I was just like, oh Lord, this is my answer. He, in the lyrics he says, they say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And right now, right now I'm losing bad. I've stood on the stage night after night reminding the broken, you'll be all right. But right now, right now I just can't. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what shall I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? I know you are able and I know that you can save the fi f fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. They say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing. A little faith is all I have right now. But God, when you choose to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing, it is well with my, my soul. What a powerful statement. When you're going through when your parents or your dad just died, where your, your, your son has just rebelled and is on drug addiction or, and you don't really see a way out. When your job is, you know, your boss threatens your job because, because of your faith. Or people just don't like you. When you are faced with this, what do you do? We see Meshach, Shidrach, and Abednego says, even if you don't, we will still not worship. God, in these moments when you make certain mountains that are unmovable and it's not, nothing is changing, help me or give me the strength to sing that it's well with my soul. That is the hope that we have in Christ. You see, the same God who saves you is able to keep you. The same God who's, who saves you is good enough and, and he is able to give you significance. He's also able to give you hope in these kind of moments when you are threatened. And the last one that I want to mention is that the same God who is able to save you, to keep you, the same God can deliver you. We see that in this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says that when they were thrown into the fire, you know, the fire was just so crazy that the, the, the guards actually fell and they died because of that fire. 
But then to verse 24, we have this glimpse of hope. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar, the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his uh, high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loose and walking about the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. A lot of theologians say that this is a, is a representation. This in the fire, that was Jesus. That is a Christophany, what we call it today. An appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. But Daniel himself, this is about his friends, and they stood their ground. But la later down the road, I mean, there's just so many stories of what Daniel does, and there's a time where he interprets the dreams, and we kind of go through that, and some of them already were mentioned for the last. But I want to just close with this, this thing that happens to Daniel. Daniel is praying three times a day, and there's a new king comes to power. His name is Darius. And the people around King Darius hate Daniel because of his influence, because that he's, he's always praying to his God. So they go up to king and say, wouldn't it be great if no one in the land for 30 days would worship anybody, like no, nobody but you? They're just sort of buttering him up. They're just lying to him. And King Darius is like, of course it'd be great. That'd be awesome, actually. So he gives this huge command and he gives this rule that nobody is allowed to pray. <laughs> but this is the amazing thing about Daniel. It says that then they approached and spoke before the king about king's injunction. Uh, actually, Daniel, I don't have that, that scripture, but Daniel doesn't allow this to stop him. He opens the window and he does his thing. He would fast regularly. He would pray daily. And we come to verse 12 here. And chapter 6 says, Then they approached and spoke before the king, they being like people who hate Daniel. The king's, about the king's injunction, didn't you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, is to ca be cast into the lion's den. The king replied, the statement is true, according to the law of Me uh, Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and, his, and, and his, he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that this is the law of Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statue which the king established may be changed. Then the king gave orders that Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Then kings spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will, will himself deliver you. 
A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with signet ring of his nobles, so that no, uh, nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his place and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and sleep fled from him. He couldn't sleep. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of the day, and went in the haste to the lions. Then, when he had come near to, the den, uh, to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, who you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent an a- his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I found innocence, uh, innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have not committed, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he was trusted in his God. He had trust in his God. Then the king, king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, their wives in the lion's den and they had not reached to the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That's pretty gruesome. But here's the hope. The hope is that Daniel is just a representation of what Jesus, who Jesus is. See, Daniel, if you look in the Old Testament, New Testament, there's not a lot of times where we see that Daniel is looked upon as a figure with a lot of sin in his life. He himself admits that I confess my sins before the Lord. But he's held up as a figure that is a hero of the faith. Someone who stood his ground all all of the years. Some scholars put him at about 82 years, uh, years old when he died. He was faithful to his God, but also he was faithful to his kings. It wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar, it was also King Darius. But he was maliciously accused. Even though he was innocent, he was accused for something he didn't do. Or rather, was there a law? Uh, He did do, he did pray, but there was a law that was unjust. And because of that, he was accused that supposedly he broke the law, which that law itself was a man-made law that was unjust. So he was innocent, but he was accused. And then he was thrown into the lines of, uh, dens of lions. So he's, he's thrown into this hole with a whole bunch of lions. And by all accounts and purposes, Daniel is gonna be dead. Not only that, they sealed the top of that hole with lions. Kind of like, you know, Jesus. Jesus was innocently accused. He was tried on made up charges. He he was accused for breaking certain laws even though he came to fulfill the law. And then he was led to the cross, which is kind of like that, the hole in the ground with And by all accounts and purposes, Jesus was supposed to die on that cross and nobody to be talking about Jesus anymore. But you see, in the greatest brokenness, and the greatest, what what, what the enemy thought was the greatest triumph, 
This is where the greatest thing happened. Where at the cross, the enemy's head got crushed. Death was defeated. Just like Daniel was thrown into this hole and then he came out unscathed, right? Like he came out and he says, the God whom I serve closed the mouths of lions. And the testimony of Daniel spread throughout the whole kingdom. You see, when you are going through your difficulty, when you are going, and I, this is why I so revolt against this idea that somehow if you become a Christian, everything is going to be good. When people say stuff like, oh, you know, I thought being a Christian, God is going to like take care of all that, but like I broke up, she broke up with me. And then I lost the job on the same day. And then my parents disowned me the same day. And then I walked out and I got hit by a bus. And, 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 and then I, laying down, I was like, this is good. This is good for me. Like, no, you wouldn't say that kind of stuff. But in the New, New Testament, we see a lot of the stuff, kind of like when James says, in your trials, rejoice. Excuse me. What do you mean? Rejoice in my trials. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, because your trials has potential to achieve something that... Think about this. God himself found it necessary for his son to be crucified. God himself was okay with the idea of the world hating Jesus. And Jesus himself said that because you're not of the world, they will hate you too. But if they love you, you should really wonder if you are of the world or not. So this morning, I, I want to encourage you. If you find yourself in the time of persecution, or if you find yourself in Babylon, where people are throwing themselves at you, there's opportunity, there's money, and the enemy is no longer trying to persecute you. So he's trying to entice you. He's trying, you, he's trying to change the way you think by offering you everything. It's not a new strategy here. He tried out Jesus. Remember when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness? When he said, you can have all of this if you just bow down and worship me. So when we talk about Seattle and Bellevue, I hope we are a church that even though we live in what would be modern day Babylon, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus came and changed our hearts. And we are people of the kingdom of God. We are not like everyone else. We are not chasing money, power, sex, fame, and all that. We are here because He changed and transformed our lives. And every single you know, thing that we take, every single time we do communion, every single time we fast, every single time we pray, every single time we worship, every single time we listen to a sermon, every single time we choose to live according to His you know, rules and His you know, design for our life, we are enforcing that what He has called us to do. And it, even when we find ourselves in brokenness, even when we find ourselves with, with, with kind of like questioning our future, our identity, when our names, our people call us by different names, and in all, all that chaos, God is sovereign of all this. 
We would not be talking about Daniel if he was not kidnapped. We would not talk about Daniel if God did not give the king of Jehoiakim into the, in the, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And we would not talk because you see, God cares about the Babylonians. He also cares about the Israelites. God cares about people. Just like he cared about the people of Nineveh. Those are the people of the Assyrians, but God cares. And your testimony of what you've went through will impact the people around you. And we're able to be, you know, encouraged by Daniel's testimony, even though he didn't live, you know, he didn't live a life of constantly giving into things. And no, he, because of the brokenness he experienced, because of being accused, the wrong things we're able to be encouraged by that so i'm asking you to raise with me this morning and i want to call you this morning uh, we're going to have our prayer partners if you if you are here you got to step out and if you are going through a, a rough time be it a time of persecution maybe someone at work is is constantly trying to have you fired or maybe you find yourself in babylon where you have everything and the enemy is trying to entice you to worship other gods, to worship, you know, things instead of God himself. I want to pray with you this morning, and, we're gonna, we, and then after that, we're going to go back into worship. But I want to encourage you that what was meant to bury you, God, just like Jesus, broke through death, broke through the burial, broke through all that. God is setting you up for that. God is setting you up to come out and be a testimony to the people around you. Thank you for listening to Eternal Stance. My hope is that these messages will help you to live in light of eternity. If this podcast is a blessing to you, would you share with other people? Thank you in advance, and until next time, God bless you.